We live in a world where every day people get criticized, sometimes fairly and sometimes unfairly, by mobs of people online. Sometimes it's just an annoyance or sometimes it gets taken to a very dark place. But what if the person who started an online campaign against you that led to you losing your dream career reached out to try to help you get it back? This is one of the plot lines in Carlo Loriano's latest novel, The Saturday Night Supper Club. We talked about what motivates these anonymous online characters to act. I think we always kind of just, it's human nature to want to believe the worst about people, but I also think that the internet adds a new dimension because it is anonymous. And so, you know, people can say whatever they want without any repercussions. Welcome to the ARC Podcast. I'm Adam. Today, Joy and I talk with author Carla Loriano about her latest book, The Saturday Night Supper Club. We dive in deep on the themes without giving away any spoilers, so don't worry. We also talked a little about her life as a writer and her process. If you want to learn more about Carla, you can visit her website, carlaloriano.com. You can learn more about her book at tyndale.com. Now to our interview with Carla. Carla, welcome to the ARC podcast. We're very excited you took the time to talk with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Awesome. Now, um, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here with my first question. Um, your, your latest book, Saturday Night Supper Club, has a supper club. You mentioned in your bio that you enjoy cooking. Are you afraid that some of your fans and readers are just going to show up at your house looking for food? <laughs> You know what? Um, that wouldn't be such a bad thing. I love having people over and cooking for them, though. I think I'd probably be a little taken aback if, if strangers show up on my doorstep. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you'd handle it gracefully. Uh, but Carla, do tell us a little bit about uh, the book for readers who aren't familiar with it and who are anticipating its release in February. Sure. The Saturday Night Supper Club is about a Denver chef who finds herself embroiled in a social media scandal and gets pushed out of the restaurant that she co-owns with partners. And so she's desperate to get her reputation back and to find a new investor to open a new place. But because her name is kind of mud now, no one wants to hinge their reputation on hers. And the only person who will help her is the guy who inadvertently started the whole debacle in the first place. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you're, you're mixing some current day issues in, particularly focused on social media. We see that so much now, even in politics, with people slashing each other or in, in anonymous characters hurting one another. And that, that's really taken a turn for the worse, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I had been following some of the various social media scandals that happened, you know, over the year or so that I was working on this book and really started thinking about what responsibility do we have as Christians to get to the truth before we condemn someone. Mm -hmm. And um, unfortunately, it takes very little to ruin someone's reputation. It doesn't even have to be based on fact. Um, kind of public opinion is what determines what's going to happen from there. And so I really wanted to take, she makes some mistakes, but they're, are, they're accidental mistakes. She doesn't mean to come across as she is. And, and so it just kind of 
takes on a life of its own. And I'm thinking, how terrible would that be? And for all these people that may be innocent, but they've already been condemned in social media without mm-hmm. any judge or jury. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, do, you, do you have any theories around that social media mob mentality about why people jump on board so easily to those? You know, um, I don't know. I mean, I think people have always been attracted to drama. And I mean, we've got a history of public executions yeah. and we, you know, all of the kind of yellow journalism and the rag newspapers in the 1800s that they started putting more and more sensational news in it just to get people to buy it. So I think we always kind of just it's human nature to want to believe the worst about people. But I also think that the internet adds a new dimension because it is anonymous. And so, you know, people can say whatever they want without any repercussions. Mm -hmm. And they feel like, oh, I found all my people and look, we're going to gang up and it makes them feel powerful. And I think especially now, um, so much is out of our control. I think a lot of people are just looking for that feeling of power, like they can take control um, of something and it can get out of control pretty mm-hmm. easily. Mm-hmm. And one of the, the key things to this is that people gravitate towards extremes and that's, that can be a little bit unfortunate because people aren't taking the time to discern for themselves the nuances. And one of the, the incredible things you've done with your book is touch on a different theme and have asked the question, is it possible to find something in the middle, to find a balance. And that's the intersection of culture and feminism and career for the modern Christian woman. Can you speak to that, particularly about how that relates to your main character and then what you hope readers, particularly women readers, to get out of this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, The culinary world in particular was an interesting environment to explore that question because it has been very male dominated in the past and um, it's changing a little bit especially because we have a lot of female chefs and the younger generation is getting away from that kind of almost military mentality that you find in a lot of older kitchens um, kind of the French brigade kitchen style and so it's becoming more nurturing but for the most part women who come up in this business are extremely tough they have to deal with a lot of harassment. Um, they have to prove that they're just as good as the men because it can be very much a boys club. And so it's kind of like, how do you find that balance between, listen, I proved myself and I shouldn't have to speak to the fact that I'm a woman anymore because I got to this, this level um, of a claim and that proves that I'm just as good of a cook as everyone else. And the other side, well, it took me so much effort to get there. What responsibility do I have to other women to speak out about it and to change things? And mm-hmm. I think that's something that Christian women in particular, um, can find to be difficult because for one thing, there's various views on um, the roles of men and women, not just in the family, but in business. There are various views on um, what does feminism mean? Does it mean equality for everyone? Does it mean promoting women because you're a woman above men? And so there's really no agreement. And so when you're a Christian woman, especially working in business, and you've really been tasked with doing the best that you possibly can, um, doing everything for God, 
um, achieving what you need to achieve for your company, um, following your dreams, and then trying to balance it with, well, you know, how does that fit in with my role as a Christian woman? And what exactly mm-hmm. does that mean? It's going to be a little bit diff- different for everyone. And it's kind mm-hmm. of difficult to define. So I purposely didn't want to come out and give answers because everyone might define that a little bit differently. For um, Rachel in the book, she doesn't want to take a position to where she's slamming the men because they helped her get to where she is. But at the same time, she doesn't want to be a crusader because she feels like the focus really should be on her work. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that I relate to as well as um, an author. How Mm. much really should I be speaking out about issues and how much should I just really be speaking about my work? Because everything I really have to say is contained in there in some way or another. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. It, it can just be a difficult balance, um, I think. Yes, that's really interesting, Carla. I was a part of a program last year at my church, actually, that was, it was founded a while ago by Tim Keller at Redeemer Press, and it's called the Gotham Fellowship, and it's all about uh, honoring the Lord through our work and what it means to be excellent and competent in our work. And we discussed issues like this about injustices in the workplace, but also how our competence can be one of the greatest witnesses that we're excellent and we prioritize our work. And that, in the world's terms, is something to admire and respect. And I've thought a lot about that as a, a young woman in the professional world. So I think it's a great issue to bring up and one that you did so in a very clever way. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, can you talk a little bit about your two uh, kind of main love interest characters, Rachel and Alex, and kind of what motivates them throughout the, the story? Sure. Um, I think Rachel and Alex are kind of interesting characters because they both have a lot of family baggage in their past um, in different ways. And that really kind of motivates their actions. They both have these expectations um, on them, both their own expectations and both uh, and in their parents as well. Rachel, not to give too much away from the book, had kind of had a difficult childhood and that affects the way that she sees herself and um, kind of her drive to prove that she can be a success. And then Alex, on the other hand, has kind of an interesting family background. He's first generation American. Um, His parents are Russian immigrants, um, very successful academics. And they were always determined that he was going to go into academia like he was. That was their definition of success. And he actually got all the way to a PhD in psychology before he realized he didn't want to be a clinician. He was just doing that to make them happy and to meet their expectations. And what he really wanted to be was writer. And it was something that he could use all his talents in. But he's constantly battling against the fact that they still think that he's really kind of let them down in his life choices, even though he's extremely successful. And so they're kind of an interesting foil for each other because one has an involved family and one has a distanced family. Rachel doesn't see her parents at all. She's completely um, cut up, cut off from them now. Um, But the family expectations are still always driving um, what they're doing in their lives. So it was nice to kind of contrast the two different ways that they could happen and give them a chance to kind of work through that over the course of the story and realize um, maybe, you know, that's not 
the most important thing and and to understand how God fits into that whole picture as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it looks like for both of these subject matters, both in cooking world and then Russian-American history, what was your research like? How did you learn about those subjects enough to shape your characters accurately? You know, it's amazing. The internet, <laughs> there's everything <laughs> that you need to know. Mm -hmm. I actually read, I actually read a lot of blogs, um, specifically for the Russian American component. Um, I read a lot of first person accounts. I read a lot of blogs. I read a lot of articles. I started getting into some scholarly stuff and realized that that was probably a little too deep for what I was doing because essentially people are the same regardless of where they came from. They may mm -hmm. have a little bit of a different cultural background, but we still all have the same kind of difficult family relationships at times, and um, we're all feeling the weight of expectations. And so while I definitely wanted to get the details of the Russian American experience accurate and correct, um, it was more important to get this family correct. Mm -hmm. The cooking component of it was a lot more prominent, and so that took a lot more research. And fortunately, because I love cooking, I had already done a lot. And, you know, I read culinary textbooks for fun. You know, that's the kind of person I am. But there was actually a lot of information. There's some chef memoirs that talk about what it's like to work in a professional kitchen. Um, and then I had some friends and acquaintances online that really allowed me to get to know kind of the chef mentality and why they do what they do and why they keep doing it, even though it's a really difficult life. Mm -hmm. And um, so I can't imagine trying to write a book like this without the internet. It would mm -hmm. have taken me forever to gather the same amount of information that I did in something like, you know, under a year. Mm -hmm. It is really incredible and kind of fun. It, it's a great thing that you love to cook because I'm sure you learned things along the way that benefited you and your cooking. And it's curious to me that cooking has been on the rise as entertainment and chefs are now celebrities and they're some of the most popular shows. What do you think that says about our culture? Do you have any ideas of why they may be as popular as they are? Well, the funny thing is, is that that whole question was what made me write my first contemporary novel, Five Days in Sky, because that has a celebrity chef hero. And I was like, what would it be like to start out just being someone who liked to cook and all of a sudden be in the public eye and known for, you know, your looks and your personality and who you're mm -hmm. dating and all that kind of stuff. And it seemed really strange to me. I think, um, I, you know, I don't know what the fascination is, to be honest. I think partly so few of us cook anymore that it's become like a specialized skill mm -hmm. and I'm always surprised that there's a lot of people that are like oh I don't I don't cook I just do takeout or I do frozen things or whatever um, so I think it's kind of a dying art in a lot of ways and so people start to really admire people who can do something well that they can't do mm -hmm. but it's also a very um I don't know, it's a very sensual thing, food. And mm -hmm. so it engages all the senses. And I think even just watching it on TV and the imagination and thinking, wow, that's, you know, that's amazing. I'd love to eat something like that. What could I make or where could I go and get something like that? It's kind of, it's, I guess it's kind of a fun thing. Mm -hmm. um, I, I've watched them for a while, but to be honest, I, I kind of hit like maximum saturation on yes. cooking related material. <laughs> 
Absolutely. Yeah, you explained that really well, Carla. I would agree with you in all of those things. It's it's an interesting comment to say that a lot of people don't cook anymore. For me, it's hard to imagine not cooking, um, but I know for the just the sake of convenience, that's the lifestyle of many. Well, and I, it was it was a lot different my relationship with cooking when my kids were young, and mm -hmm. you know we were living firmly in the mac and cheese phase of life, you know, yeah. <laughs> and so it it wasn't it's fun just to cook for my husband and I when I was going to have to cook a separate meal for a toddler. Um, now that they're getting a little older and I've developed some food allergies, so it's really become a necessity for me to know what's going into my food. Right. I can't imagine not doing it either. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And just especially, I mean, if you're, if you're watching your health or your weight, trying right. to eat out and find something that's acceptable is extremely difficult. So I'm glad that Honestly, I think people younger than me, the, the millennial generation is really embracing cooking more than my generation did. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a good progress. It's a good shift. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't watch any cooking shows or any of those competition shows, but I love uh, the great British uh, baking show. So I just wanted to put a plug in for that. <laughs> Isn't that fantastic? <laughs> so I good. need to watch it. <laughs> it's anti-American cooking show because instead of being mean to them when they get cut, everyone gathers around them yep. and tells them how amazing they are and Aww. like pats them on the back. It is just so yep. very British and sweet and uplifting compared to the yes. you're cut, you're out of here kind of yeah, mentality. mentality. Right, and they're always helping each other. It's so nice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it is really a great show. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh, since you're book is in the Christian fiction category. Um, can you tell us a little bit about some of the faith themes that play out? Yeah, I think the biggest, um, I think the biggest faith theme in the book is related to Rachel's journey. And again, I don't want to give too much away, but <laughs> it really does feel like she's been on her own and she's had to do everything on her own and she's had to you know, fight and struggle and there's no one on her side and she's retained part of her faith, but kind of held it back because she's afraid of being hurt. And I think her big journey, which meant a lot to me because I've had a similar experience is being able to look back and see how God had been with her um, every step of the way, even though she didn't see him there. And when I look back on my really convoluted, you know, career path, to this point, I never, I never would have seen where God was taking me until I got to the other side and saw how all the elements fit together and how he was preparing me specifically to do this job that I have always wanted to be a writer, but I took a lot of detours along the way and they seemed unrelated. But I can tell you that every experience that I've had um, has really played into what I need to know now, and I'm extremely grateful for it. And so I think a lot of times it, it's realizing that faith is understanding that God is taking you in a direction and he's with you and you may not be able to see the whole picture, but you will be able to someday. Mm -hmm. That's a, an encouragement to me, Carla, because so often we, I just wish I could see the future sometimes, just saying, Lord, just give me a glimpse. And a friend reminded me that scripture is compared to a lamp for our feet and a light into our path. And you think about the light that a lamp 
gives out, it's not like a lighthouse. It's not even a flashlight. It's the lamp can only light so much. And so the Lord in, in his purposes only lets us see so far. And then when we, we look back and our path is lit and we say, wow, Lord, you have carried me so far. You've been faithful the whole way. Seriously, I think I should just put the hymn Trust and Obey on repeat, like yes. around me at all times, because yes. <laughs> we really can't see beyond that little circle of what we have around mm -hmm. us. And it can be really scary. And when I think about all of the times that I've really stepped out in faith, they've been the best decisions that mm -hmm. had I let my fear hold me back, I wouldn't have gotten to experience those things. Mm -hmm. That's right. I, I'm wondering if you can expound a little bit more on the theme that you mentioned about righting your wrongs. So obviously, you know, Rachel goes through a journey and Alex is too. And you mentioned even, even in the book description about how Rachel's way to wholeness is actually through Alex who made it difficult for her at the beginning. Can you speak to that even without giving away the entire plot? <laughs> I think, I think what I love about Alex is that his best quality is also kind of his downfall because he really wants to do the right thing. He's very principled. Um, he actually, he's a little bit cynical <laughs> because he makes a living of basically analyzing the world and satirically writing what's wrong with it. And so, um, yeah, he can be a little bit jaded, but at the same time, there's that part of him that can't stand the thought that he's responsible for causing Rachel's career to mm. plummet. And so he feels like as, you know, a man of faith and as a man of character, he has to do everything he can to fix that. But the flip side of that is some things are not your things to be fixed. Mm. And that fits in really well with Rachel, who does not want to be fixed, especially by a man. Mm. So <laughs> after some of her experiences. So um, I, I love him because he really does have this great, like, I, I'm going to do anything it takes to make up for what I've done, but it can get him in trouble as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, we, a lot of us have those strengths that can be borderline weaknesses too. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I want to shift gears a little bit and ask you about your writing process. Um, do you usually start with um, like a central idea and then build the characters around that and the plot? Or do you start with a plot or start with characters? How does that usually work out uh, when you're writing? I, I normally start with a premise and with the characters. So for me, um, the books are always character driven. I had the idea of who Rachel was before I had any idea what was going to happen around her with the plot. <laughs> and actually the plot took a couple of different iterations before I found the right one for these characters, which sounds kind of funny for people who start with the plot first. Um, that's not to say that I don't plot out, but things change drastically along the way as I get to know the characters. And I was talking to a friend of mine and she says she always starts with the faith element, the lesson that they're supposed to learn. And I thought that was really interesting because I never know what the faith element is until <laughs> I'm done. And I see mm. their journey because it, it develops organically through the characters and mm. how they react. And then I go, oh, okay. And oddly enough, it usually relates to something that I need to learn. Yeah. So. Uh -huh. yeah. 
we just spoke with uh, Francine Rivers last week, and she said she usually starts with a question that she wants to answer. That kind of drives oh. the whole story forward. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I Carla, like that. Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just saying I like that. That's an interesting approach to it as well. Yeah, it is. So you've written a few other books, and I'm wondering, you know, you you even mentioned that your path to become a writer was a little bit more convoluted than you were expecting. What would you recommend to someone like you who's in the early stages or just has a dream to write and doesn't feel like they're getting there or making any traction? You know, I've been talking about this a lot because I think it goes back to that old saying that it only takes 10 years to become an overnight success. <laughs> well, in my case, it took 15 years. I, I wrote my actually even longer. I wrote my first novel at 16 when I was in mm -hmm. high school. Mm -hmm. um, and I was laid up from an injury, a ballet injury that pretty much ended my dreams of being a ballet dancer and set me on the path um, to being a writer. But then I went to college and then I wrote my second novel and both of them were terrible. I mean, your first novels are always going to be awful. There's just <laughs> no question about it because you need practice. It's like anything else. And it basically took me 15 years of writing and submitting and getting rejected and rewriting and submitting and getting rejected before I finally landed an agent in a contract. But I would never trade those years for anything because I call that my apprenticeship. You know, all crafts need to have their apprenticeship. You would not, for example, for me, I wouldn't expect to go out on stage and dance Swan Lake without having a solid classical ballet training behind me because you would find it impossible. And even if you could pull it off, you can't handle the demands of a professional career without having the solid basis. And so I think having all of those years to develop my craft and to do other things. I worked in marketing, which comes in handy. I worked in sales, which comes in handy. Um, you know, I just gained life experience from everything that I've been through and making cross country moves and getting married and having kids and all of that kind of goes into making me a different human that can write a different kind of book. And when I was ready in my craft and as a person, and I had a real story to tell, that's when it finally happened to me. So I guess that's a really long way of saying, don't rush it. Don't feel like you have to do it now or else it's never going to happen because this really is a long game. Um, it takes a lot of years to get good enough to be published, especially now with all of the line contractions and you know um, publishers merging and people cutting fiction and all that kind of stuff there's even fewer slots than there were before. And so you really do need to work on your craft and to be the best writer you can be and to be the best human you can be so that you have something that's worthwhile to say. I am so glad that book from when I was 20 did not get published because at 20, I had no idea what I was talking about. Yeah, I know many of us at 20 had no idea. <laughs> I think I probably could have written young adult because I was through it and I understood it, but I was trying to write ahead of myself and mm -hmm. yeah, I just didn't get it yet. So, yeah. I mean, thank God for small favors. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I'm amazed you, you wrote a novel when you're in high school. I could barely finish my math homework. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I started writing stories when I was six or seven. Okay. So, and I always wrote concurrently with the dancing, but I knew that the dance was the thing that I had to do first because you can't do it for very long. And so when that didn't 
work out, I had something to fall back on. You know, it only took me 15 or 20 years to get there, but <laughs> the journey was worth it. Mm-hmm. It was worth it. Mm-hmm. Now, Saturday Night Supper Club is the first book in a series. Did they? I don't. Without giving too much away, did they? Other books follow these same characters, or is it different perspectives? They're, they follow um, the secondary characters from the first book. So okay. one of my favorite things about the Saturday Night Supper Club is the relationship that Rachel has with her best friends, Melody and Anna. And so you get to know them pretty well in the first book, and then they get their own start stories. So um, Brunch at Bittersweet Cafe is the second book, and that follows Melody, the pastry chef, and kind of her journey to love and professional fulfillment. And then the third one is going to be about Anna. Her full name's Anna Lynn, but um, and kind of how she deals with some big upsets in her very carefully ordered life. Hmm. And I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to give away too much, but Anna is definitely the one that is the most like me. So I'm really <laughs> looking forward to writing that book. Yes, yes, I I can resonate with that very short description too. <laughs> so Carla, before we wrap up and and uh, share with readers where they can find you and learn more about you, do you have any favorite uh, restaurants in Denver? My I've considered going there. I have a couple of friends out there and would love to know if you have recommendations. Oh my gosh, we could be here for another half an hour. Um, <laughs> Right now, I think my favorite restaurant in the city is Mercantile Dining and Provisions. It's owned by a chef named Alex Seidel. And actually, I believe he was featured on episode three of The Master Chef that they're filming in Denver right now. I haven't watched it yet because I've been too busy. But um, I, you know, I, (laughs) yeah, okay, so fine. Maybe the chefs are a little bit my celebrities too. So I'm a little more familiar with him than I should be. But he has two restaurants. The other one is Fruition, and and it's amazing. And then he has a um, sheep farm where they make their own cheese, which is an awesome stuff, which is absolutely amazing as well. So um, it's like, it's my favorite kind of food. It's like, I would say... American, probably new American, and the focus is really on fresh ingredients and presenting it in a new way. And so mm-hmm. um, that would be my number one pick. But there, there's a couple other ones, and they make little appearances, references in, in the books as well. Um, Cholon Bistro is a great Asian fusion restaurant that's on 15th and Blake. And um, I, that chef has a second location as well, which is like a noodle house. And so mm-hmm. there's just a lot of interesting stuff going on in the Denver food scene, which is why I love it here. Yes, you're in the right spot, it sounds like. Yeah. How fun. Well, I wrote notes about those, so. Oh, good. Hopefully well, you have to let me know if you're in town, and I'll show you around then. Yes, yes, thank you. So if our, if our readers would, or listeners would like to know more about you, where should they visit? Um, they can visit my website uh, at com, and it has links to all my social media there. Um, and then I'm usually on my Facebook author page as well, which is Carla Loriano Author. You can just search that and find me. And um, I, I, I'd like to spend more time on Instagram, but I really don't. There's food pictures there, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Good too. Thank you, Carla. Yeah, that's great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us thank today. You. And we look forward to the Saturday Saturday Night Supper Club coming out in February, which by the time people listen to this, they could probably go 
out and buy it anywhere books are sold. Wonderful. Thanks so much for having me. This has been fun. Right. Thank you, Carla. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.